Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, we are in a series on our vision and values as a church. This is the final week of this series that we've been going through. It's been great. I am so ready for the next series, though, because there's nothing I love more than preaching through books of the Bible. And we're going to be jumping into the series of John, walking through the, the life of Jesus. It's going to take us almost a whole year, if not over a year. And so if you're new to the church, this is a great time to be joining and hearing just who Jesus is. Uh, but this week, we're covering our final value as a church, and that value is gospel culture gospel culture. We've already covered our first two values, the first value being sound doctrine, second, multi-ethnicity, and now gospel culture. And so if you're new to the church, I encourage you, you can go back and listen to any of those that you want to, or I can send you my sermon if you prefer to read it, I'd be happy to do that. But today we're doing gospel culture. Before we dive in, I need to give credit where credit is due, because this is a term that I had never even heard of before a few years ago. And it's very clear in the scriptures, very clearly taught, but it's kind of newly coined and many of the phrases that go with it have been shared with me, shared to me by a pastor in Nashville named Ray Ortland, who's written books on this, he's done podcasts, he's like made, been very prolific in his uh, dissemination of gospel culture and what that means. And so a lot of the best stuff that I have to share with you is stuff that I've borrowed from Ray. I, I hope that that's okay in the Lord's economy and whatnot. But just to give credit where credit is due, I know many of you are academics and you get fired uh, for some of the things that we might do, but uh, I'm, I'm going ahead and giving you uh, that, that blanket uh, credit there. So what do we mean when we say gospel culture? Well, I think that first we need to do a little defining, okay? When we say gospel culture, first let's define gospel, then we'll define culture, and then we'll put them together, okay? Gospel, the good news for bad people, that Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, came to earth, lived the life that we should have lived, and died the death that we deserve to die. He died the death of a sinner. But on the third day, he was resurrected from the dead, and he appeared to over 500 different witnesses. He ascended on high, and one day he is coming again. And now, through our faith in him, we're united with Christ, and so we have real participation and relationship with God in the Trinity. 
And that is the good news, that it is not what we've done, but what Christ has already done. And that's what we're talking about when we say gospel. Now, what do we mean when we say culture? Culture is one of those things that feels second nature to us. But when you try to define the word, like we all know what it means, but good luck defining it, okay? It's not an easy word to define because there's different scales of culture. You can have huge cultures. You can have a Western culture or an Eastern culture. And then you can get more specific and have ethnocentric cultures. And you can have national cultures. And you can have state cultures. One of my favorite things to do is to follow Massachusetts cultural Instagram accounts because those people are just hilarious talking about how great Massachusetts is. Uh, If you grew up here, you think this is the best place on the planet. And maybe it is. I don't know. You can do all the way down to smaller and smaller cultures. You can have a culture of Somerville, a culture of our church, the culture of our family. But when we try to define culture, I think J.I. Packer defines it really well when he says, it is the public lifestyle that expresses a shared mindset and convictions held in common. The public lifestyle that expresses the shared mindset and convictions that we hold in common. It's our culture. Now, when we say gospel culture, that means that we want to have a shared lifestyle that expresses the gospel. And what does that look like? Churches get it wrong all the time. How many of us have been a part of a church that says the right things? They have an excellent doctrinal statement, but then you walk in, and man, people are mean, they're not welcoming. It just doesn't feel like they believe the things that they say they believe. And that is the problem. We need a gospel culture. Here's how Ray puts it together. He defines it like this. The shared experience of grace for the undeserving. The corporate incarnation of the biblical message in the relationships, vibe, feel, values, priorities, aroma, honesty, freedom, gentleness, humility, cheerfulness, indeed the total human reality of a church defined and sweetened by the gospel. So what he's basically saying is this, that the gospel, it changes people. The good news of Jesus, it changes us. And it changes not just us individually, but it changes us us collectively. It doesn't just say something, but it does something. It tells us truths about how how God interacts with us, but then it does something to us. And it changes the way that we relate with one another, and it helps us to become a gospel people and not just a gospel person. So important that we work on this. As I said a moment ago, how many churches will pour hours and hours and time writing a doctrinal statement? They teach you that in seminary. They make you work on that all the time. It's very important. When you're going to a church, that's the first thing I look at is the doctrinal statement. But how many of those same churches will just ignore the culture that their church participates in and what it feels like in the church? But what does Paul tell us? Two weeks ago, we did sound doctrine. What did he tell us? He said, watch your life and doctrine closely. And in so doing, you might not only save yourselves, but others also. He doesn't say just watch your doctrine closely. Watch your life and doctrine. Your culture is just as important as your doctrine because your culture is what expresses that that doctrine is real. How many of us have been to a church that believes all the right things but does not have the aroma of Christ? 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 
says that we are the aroma of Christ. Now that is a weird way of saying that, is it not? The aroma of Christ? But when you think about it, the smell of Christ, there's no sense that can give you a better vibe than smell. There's a multi-billion dollar industry on things you burn in your house to make it smell, okay? Candles always seemed pointless to me, but then I got married and it's just like candles everywhere, all right? Especially this time of year, I'm not a big fan of pumpkin candles, but it seems to be the feel that we're all going for. We want that fall. And in fact, last night, my wife was like, there was a candle sitting there. She's like, nope, that's not what I want. She moved it, got a different one, brought it over, lit a different one. And she said, this one's called Cozy Feelings. <laughs> and so we, we chilled to Cozy Feelings. Smell sets a vibe. And that's what it means to be an aroma of Christ. Smell also is a trigger to your memory. Uh, you know, when you smell something, sometimes it just will teleport you to a specific day and time, thing that happened. If I smell someone ironing with starch, I am immediately teleported to a Sunday morning in my mom's house. Like, there's just no way. I just feel the sun on my face. It could be raining, but I'm just like, it's Sunday, and I'm in Mississippi, and I'm with my mother. That, that's how the smell works. You could call me sentimental. <laughs> uh, so the church is to be the aroma of Christ, <laughs> not just the knowledge of Christ, but the feel of Christ. But this is not what we often find in churches today. Uh, the author, Ann Rice, says this, Christians have lost credibility in America as people who know how to live and love. American Christianity does not always reflect the Christianity of Scripture. Uh, Pastor A.W. Tozer said it like this. He said, a widespread revival of the kind of Christianity we know today in America might prove to be more of a moral tragedy from which we would never recover in 100 years. So what type of Christianity are we promoting and are we seeking? If it's just the American-style Christianity, that could be bad because our culture is not always good in our churches. Collectively, the lives that we live, our culture, we not only acknowledge Jesus with our mouths, but we live out what it means to follow him by our actions. Francis Schaeffer said that our orthodoxy of doctrine and our orthodoxy of community are equally significant. Orthodoxy of doctrine and orthodoxy of community. And so it's not just what the gospel says, but it's what the gospel does, that it says the truths of Christ crucified, resurrected, and ascended, but what does it do? It creates new hearts in us, and it creates new love between us and beauty between us. It's like the glories of the gospel come down, and it's like they hit a mirror, and then they're extended throughout everywhere. N.T. Wright says that we're to function as mirrors of the kingdom of God, and so what we think about that is that we're reflecting the kingdom of God, but it's not just a mirror, he says. It's not just a mirror that reflects the kingdom of God back to uh, heaven, but it's a slanted mirror. So the kingdom of God comes down into us, and then we reflect it out into the world and throughout our church and throughout our communities. And so that is how we're to function. That is what it means to be a gospel person in a gospel culture. So with the rest of our time here today, what I want to do is walk through what this looks like. Uh, so that you can hunger for it. Hopefully you're reading the menu and you're saying, I want that, as we talk about gospel culture. And, um, and in doing that, I mean, we read Romans chapter 12, this passage here, 
And Romans 12, man, you could, I could pick any number of different things from here, but we've really just isolated four uh, that we can focus on today to talk about what a gospel culture looks like. So let's dive into this. Four markers of a gospel culture. First is honesty. Honesty. A church with a gospel culture is a place where you can be honest about who you really are. You can confess your failings. You can be weak. You can be needy. This is completely counterintuitive to the way that we usually live our lives, is it not? Because we go into the workplace or into the school, into academia, wherever we might be, and what is the one thing that we want everyone to know about us? That I am competent. I am good enough. I'm not weak. I'm, I do not make failures. I am strong. But the church is to be counterintuitive to that where you can be who you actually are, <laughs> which is weak and a failure and just a royal screw up. And we're there together. That is who we are. None of us have our lives together. We don't have this pressure to perform in the church because we know the truth. And the truth is, no matter how much you look like you have your life together, you are a mess. And I am too. And that's just freeing. I mean, you're a mess. And we all know it. So stop pretending, okay? Stop acting like you don't. We, we oftentimes go to churches and we put on our nice face and our nice clothes and we like to pretend like we all have ourselves put together. But that actually does the opposite of what we want. That pushes people away from the church. I mean, how many people are afraid to walk through the front doors of a church because they feel like they'll just be judged? They're just not good enough. Maybe you're here today and it took a lot of courage for you to walk through those doors of the church that you might not be good enough. But friends, I'm here to tell you it doesn't matter how good you are because we're all dependent upon Jesus. We're all longing and looking to him. Maybe you walked in here today and you think God looks at you walking into the church and he says, you, ha! never thought I'd see you here. What are you doing here? And that just shows that we've articulated a culture that reflects something about God that is not true. Because our God doesn't do that. He doesn't scoff at us, but he welcomes us. The friend of sinners is who Jesus is. And he is your friend and my friend as we come to him. We don't want to clean up ourselves first. We don't, he doesn't want us to clean up ourselves first. He delights to save sinners. I have a, a two, I try not to tell stories about all my kids. I still have one that's in, in diapers, and so I can share stories with them until they're out of diapers completely. That's kind of my rule for myself. I have a two-year-old, um, and he's potty training, and um, let me tell you something about this, okay? The last thing that I want my two-year-old to do right now as he's potty training is to try to clean himself up, okay? That's just gonna make a mess that I'm gonna have to clean a lot more of. I'm like, hey, buddy, just come to me, okay? Let me clean up your mess. And that is what the Lord calls us to do because we're just gonna make a mess. We're gonna make it worse. We're gonna smear it everywhere, okay? Our messy lives if we try to, if we try to clean ourselves up. But the Lord tells us to come here. Okay. 
come here, be honest. The church should be the one place where we feel comfortable being honest about who we really are and how we're really doing. Romans 12, 13 says, contribute to the needs of the saints. And I'll say this about our church. We are a church that likes to help people. We want to help people. But here's the problem. We all act like we have ourselves so put together that we are the ones that should be helping others. And no one actually expresses their own needs. But friends, we cannot have a church where we help the needy if none of us are willing to admit that we are the needy. You see, everybody here is both needed and needy. And you cannot be needed. A lot of us want to be needed, but you cannot be needed until you're ready to be needy. And that requires vulnerability and honesty. In the church, with a gospel culture, we can be honest about who we really are. Because the gospel says that you are a far worse person than you ever imagined. But yet, you are far more loved than you ever dared dream. And that is the good news. We can be honest because of that. And that means that with an honest culture in a gospel church, we can frequently admit our sin, our weaknesses, and our needs. If we're going to start being honest in a church like this, it's going to require us to start being vulnerable. But some of us have been hurt when we've been vulnerable in the past, and vulnerability does not sound attractive to us at this point. When I was five years old, my aunt had this um, wonderful snow globe. It was a larger one than normal. It was very fragile. It was very dear to her. And I just remember staring at it all Christmas Day. And then I asked my aunt, can I hold the snow globe? And she said, yes, you may hold the snow globe, but be very careful because it is very precious to me. It's very expensive and I care about it. And so she handed me the snow globe and I promised her I'd be as careful as possible. And I held the snow globe and I dropped it immediately and it shattered into a thousand pieces. And I have still not been allowed to hold a snow globe in my home. And I'm 37 years old. So 32 years, no snow globes for Fletcher. Some of you got up the courage one time to be vulnerable, and someone dropped the fragile pieces of your heart. And you're going to have to have a lot of courage if you want to go there again. And we have to develop a community marked by safety and time. Unless we have a community marked by safety and time, we will not be able to achieve the vulnerability that we're so longing for in our church. This is why we emphasize community groups and we want you to get into a group, but we don't just want you to get into a group. A lot of churches, you know, that's the end goal, that's the metric, they want to see how many people that can get in the group, but really we want you to be in a group where you can establish safety and time, vulnerability and honesty in that group. We have community commitments. We put out a sign every Sunday with our 10 community commitments, and these are helpful for us as we think about what it means to be a gospel culture. And two of these commitments reflect this honesty. And one of them says it's okay to not be okay. And the second one says we celebrate confession. We don't cringe. And so these are just kind of some pithy sayings that we keep in our church so that we can be encouraged to live out 
this gospel culture. So honesty is the first marker of a gospel culture. The second one that I want to talk about is honor. Honor. A church with a gospel culture is one where we honor one another. In any room you walk into, there is a spotlight, right? And I can remember many times in my life where there's been a battle over the spotlight. We're all trying to point the spotlight, and where do most people that fight for the spotlight want to point it? At themselves. But in the church, there's also a spotlight, but what we're trying to do is point it at others. Let's point that spotlight at someone else and honor them. I'm not talking about flattery, okay? Flattery is when you say something to someone else so that they might like you more. It's a way to act like you're pointing the spotlight at someone else, but really you're just pointing it back at yourself. I'm talking about actually encouraging one another so that we might live up to who God has made us and what he has done in us. I, flattery will kill us, but honor is like wind under our wings. It's wind in our sails that keeps us going, and it requires honesty and humility for us to do that. Uh, a few months ago, or years ago, I'm not sure at this point, um, there was a regular at our church who would always have a kind thing to say to me about my sermon, which I appreciate. Thank you for those of you who do that. Um, but it, it started to go a little bit too far. And uh, he said one time, oh, that sermon, Pastor, was so good. You're like the Michael Jordan of preaching. And I was like, I'm Brian Scalabrini at best, okay? At least I'm in the league. But that is not me. That is flattery. We need genuine encouragement that says, this is what I see Jesus doing in you. Who can you think of this week that you can give an encouragement to and say, I see Jesus in you. And this is how I see him working in you. Romans chapter 10, chapter 12, verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Several years ago, there was a, um, a, a pastor who, in Nova Scotia who came down and spent a sabbatical time in Boston. And I got to know this guy. He had like eight kids or something. I'm not even sure. You know, once you get over six, I just stop counting. I'm just like, yeah, that's a lot. Um, he had a lot of kids. And he, um, I remember distinctly, though, this made such an impact on me. And I hope it can you, too. Because he, he, we were about to walk into like a restaurant or something, and he had two boys. They were probably eight, nine. And he looked at his boys before we walked in. He said, look, the Bible says outdo one another in honor. And so I want you guys to work on honoring the people that are hosting us and outdoing one another and honoring them the whole time. And so those boys, they opened the door for us. They like had the seats set out for us, telling us exactly where we should sit. They're trying to show us honor. I, I love how Ray Ortland says it. it is so cheesy, but he's a grandpa, so he can get it away with it. He says, look, it's a competition, but everybody wins. It's a competition. Outdo one another in honor, but everybody wins. What a great way to, to say it, even to those little boys who compete, if you have little boys, boys compete with everything. Girls do too sometimes, but boys, it's just like everything can be a race. And um, what a great way that the Lord has used this to help us to think about cultivating a gospel culture. Outdo one another in honor. 
One of the community commitments that go with this is this aspect is this idea of we build up, we don't beat up. We build up, we don't beat up. The third part of the gospel culture that I want to emphasize this morning is rejoicing. A church with a gospel culture is one where we rejoice in the Lord always. Verse, uh, verse 12 of Romans 12 says, Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. It's also emphasized in Philippians 4.4. We sang the song this morning, all right? Rejoice in the Lord. I'm not singing to you. Yeah, all, you wouldn't be rejoicing if I sang it, right? <laughs> again, I say, again, I say. Thank you. Okay, there we go. Now, maybe I'm alone, maybe I'm alone, but uh, this verse can be a little annoying to me at times, all right? I'm not always the most joyful of people. Um, I, in, in my heart, I actually enjoy complaining. And, uh, and here's the thing, I don't know how many of you are with Enneagram. I'm not a big Enneagram guy. This is probably the first time I've ever mentioned the Enneagram in the church. But I'm like, if you're gonna look at it, I'm like a hard one on the Enneagram. And the one superpower is they can walk into a room and tell you everything wrong with it at that exact moment. And everything wrong with you. Um, so if you'd like some good constructive criticism, like I, I already know it, that's, uh, that's the way it works. Um, that's not rejoicing in the Lord though, okay? That's, that's me giving into my flesh and, and just looking at the, bad side of everything. You know, the world sees life different than we do. Because the world says there's nothing to see. It's all just bad. But Christians see the world differently. We see reason to rejoice. Because he doesn't just say rejoice. He says rejoice in the Lord. And then in Romans 12, he says rejoice in hope. Rejoice in hope. Now he can say this at the same time when he just got done saying Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. But even in our weeping, we can rejoice in hope. And hope is not the same thing that you think it is from the way that we use the word. Hope is not this, I hope it will happen, this unsured of future that we have. Hope, in a biblical sense, is a guaranteed future of what God has done for us and what he will do for us. So we rejoice in the hope that we have in Christ. It's a concrete thing, not an ethereal thing that we are just might happen. That's not hope in a biblical sense. In a biblical sense, we are depending upon a God who is our hope. And so therefore, we can rejoice in the Lord always. When Paul wrote that, he was sitting in a prison cell. He was in prison, and yet he's saying, rejoice in the Lord always, for the Lord is at hand. He's here. Church, we have to build a culture that is counterculturally happy. It's not that just we refuse to acknowledge the pain and suffering of the world, but we do it with a heavenly hope, rejoicing in what he has done. So we have to, we have to let go of our cynicism. You know, that's the most popular type of comedy. That's what we see on TV all the time is cynicism, just seeing through everything. But friends, that does not reflect the hope that we have in Christ. Because if we see through everything, what we're gonna see on the other side, the world sees nothing at all. But what we see is God there giving us hope and a future. And the final aspect of gospel culture that I wanna emphasize is hospitality. A church with a gospel culture is one where we are showing hospitality to one another. 
Romans chapter 12, verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Or an even better verse, Romans 15, verse 7, show hospitality to one another as Christ has shown hospitality to you, as Christ has welcomed you, you welcome one another. Contemplate that with me for just one moment. What does it mean to be welcomed as Jesus has welcomed us? How have you been welcomed by Christ? It doesn't say, say hi to one another as Jesus has said hi to you. Jesus does more than say hi to us with a welcome. But he looks at us and he welcomes us into his family. He loves us like an adopted child. He loves us like a husband loving a wife. He pursues us. He holds us by the shoulders and he says, I'm glad you're here. And he brings us in close. And so that is how we welcome one another We pull one another into our lives. Hospitality goes far beyond saying hi to someone at church, although it it has to have that, at least, at the very least, or greeting a neighbor during the passing of peacetime. Uh, I'm going to joyfully embarrass someone in in our church uh, for just a moment and and show some honor, okay? Some people that have gotten this really, done this really well, uh, John and Susan Reeves, and they are, uh, if, if you've been in this church for any amount of time, you know that Susan is like the meal train queen, okay? She's set up probably a dozen in the past year of meal trains. When we were talking about uh, what, what it means to be a deacon, someone was like, well, can we just make Susan in charge of meal trains? And I was like, <laughs> I mean, she already is. Um, she's just, they, they have been overabundantly generous in that way, but they also, like when, we, when someone has a need, they often make their home available for people and let people have extended times there. I'm not making this an invitation for all of y'all, okay? So get that out of your mind if anybody's like looking for, no, okay? But they have made their home available multiple times in our church. And they're not the most extroverted people, but they're seeking to show hospitality and they're doing it lovingly and wonderfully. And I'm just so proud of what Christ has done in them, showing that they have been welcomed and so they welcome others. The community commitment that goes with it. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. The community commitment that goes with this one. I could use any assortment of different people with these illustrations, okay? Um, but I only want to joyfully embarrass one per Sunday. Um, the one that goes with this one, the community commitment that goes with this one, is community requires commitment before certainty. And I just want you to think about that one for just a second. A lot of times we'll bounce around looking for a group of people that we can be certain that these can be our friends. But friends, you will never get that certainty without commitment. That's the thing about our generation, millennials and elderly Gen Z, I guess, um, (laughs) is that we will move around um, 10 times over 10 years to looking for relationships that take 10 years to develop. It takes commitment before you have that certainty for you to have the relationships that you're so longing for. Friends, there's so much that I could talk about in Romans 12, um, about gospel culture, it goes on and on. I could go on and on about loving our enemies. 
I could talk about seeking reconciliation. That's something that we do in an honest community where we speak the truth to one another, we seek reconciliation, we live at peace as long as it depends upon us. I could go on and on about being affectionate and humble. All of these things are covered in Romans 12. But here's the question for you. Who wants to be a part of a church like this? Like that has this vibe, this tone of honesty, of rejoicing, honor, humility, of hospitality. We all want this. But friends, we have to build it. We have to do it each individually and together. We have to build it. And here's the thing. You can't get to Romans 12 unless you go through Romans 1 through 11 first. And Romans 1 through 11 is some of the most deep and thoughtful exposition on the gospel that we have anywhere in the world. He goes deep into what Jesus has achieved for us. You can't get the culture without first getting the gospel. You see, we want the culture, but we have to have the gospel because that's what creates the culture. We often think about the gospel as, if I'm good, I go to church and do the right things, then God, he might tolerate me and my life might go better. And the reason why we think about it that way is because it's almost believable. It's almost believable that, hey, if I'm, if I'm the best person that I can be, then maybe God will just let me into the room. Maybe he'll tolerate me a little bit. But the real gospel is so much better than that. Because it says, hey, you are going to be a failure and weak but yet you have been welcomed into the room. You've not only been tolerated, you've been pursued as a bride. You've been loved as a child. You've been welcomed into the deepest and most sacred things. We get to be with God and united with Christ. And so that means that the relational activity between Jesus, the Son of God, and God the Father, what's true of him is true of us. And we get to relate with God as if we were a member of the Trinity as we've been united in with Christ. That is so much better than the gospel that I can make up or the one that I'm tempted to believe, the one that, I tempt, that I'm tempted to go back to. And so if we keep that gospel in front of us that Paul explains in Romans 1 through 11, oh man, we just reflect on those glories and they're gonna start to spew out. <laughs> they're gonna start to go horizontally, as we love one another with the same kind of love that he has given us. So friends, this is a long-term vision for our church. This is where we wanna go. I hope that you experience a part of this now. I hope that you have experienced it. I hope that we grow in it as we each age and, and move along. I know that there's gonna be times where we hurt one another, where we fumble the ball, and that's okay because Jesus has grace. His grace for us. And so, friends, um, one of the ways that we see this gospel culture is by spending time with each other, sharing meals with one another. A lot of the groups share meals regularly. And um, one thing that we do every Sunday is we share a meal together. And it's when Jesus has invited us to his table. And he, he says, on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took a loaf of the bread and he tore it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And then he took a cup and he said, this is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so each week we participate in a sacred meal 
where we take of Jesus' body and his blood, symbolized by bread and wine or juice, so that we might know what it means to be welcomed into the family of God, to be seated at the table with him. And so over the next song, we're going to encourage you, if you are a believer in Christ, encourage you to evaluate your life, make sure that there isn't any unrepentant sin that you need to let go of, talk to the Lord, do that now. You are welcome to come to the table and to enjoy these, this, this sacred meal together with us. So would you stand as we prepare our hearts to receive this meal and pray with me. Uh, Father, as we come to your table, we pray that we would see your open arms your loving embrace, and that we would come welcomed as your people. God, that you would be shaping us today to reflect the eternal realities that you've experienced in the gospel, the way that you've loved the different persons in the, in the Godhead. Father, help us to reflect that glory and love one another, to seek to show honor to one another, to seek to show hospitality, to rejoice in all things, and to be honest about where we really are and where we're really going. And so, God, we pray that you give us courage in those things, and that if anyone here um, has not received Christ, that they would receive that good news of Jesus today. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.